Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. There's a bit of a theme to this week's discussion, and a Talking Feds mug awaits the first three listeners to figure it out. You can just leave your answer at questions at talkingfeds.com. Last week, Donald Trump continued to stew in the aftermath of the $83.3 million verdict in the second E. Jean Carroll defamation case, and it felt as if just maybe the presumptive Republican Party nominee for president was taking a political as well as a financial hit. The trial itself rebranded Trump as a sexual assailant and otherwise brought him to heel in the public eye under the whip hand of Judge Lewis Kaplan. In Washington, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear a case later this week that could provide a sudden deus ex machina solution to the whole Trump nightmare, disqualifying him from the ballot for his role in the insurrection of January 6th. But while the legal theory seems straightforward, it feels remote that the court will adopt it, even if each of the court's possible ways out is itself tenuous. It's a vexing moment for a court whose public approval has taken a nosedive in the wake of the overruling of Roe v. Wade. The Republican Party, meanwhile, embraced a breathtakingly cynical position, even by the standards of Washington, D.C., in the immigration crisis walking away from an offer from the administration that gave them almost everything they've been insisting on because Trump commanded them to, preferring to keep the situation in crisis so Trump can blame Biden for it in the upcoming campaign. To survey these legal and political storms, consider what they tell us about the state of the nation, and analyze our prospects for weathering them, I'm very pleased to welcome three great commentators, and returning guests to Talking Feds. And they are Charlie Sykes. Charlie's a founder of The Bulwark and editor-at-large of that publication since 2019, though he announced a few days ago that he's going to be leaving it. Congratulations on hitting the finish line of a race well run, Charlie. Thank you. And uh, he's also the author of nine, count of nine books, most recently, How the Right Lost Its Mind, as well as being a contributor to MSNBC. Always a pleasure to welcome you back. Yeah, I may have to update the book on How the Right Lost Its Mind. (laughs) I think we'll have to have monthly addendums. Rick could help me with that. (laughs) They're in their lost mind era. Okay, Ali Vitale, the Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News, calling in from Charleston, where she's on the trail with Nikki Haley. She's covered every major election since 2016, and her first book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet, came out last year. She's reputed to be the most, and we may find out in the next hour, the most ardent and knowledgeable Taylor Swift fan among all Capitol Hill reporters. Welcome, Ali. Yes, thank you so much. A title I relish. All right. And finally, and Donald Trump knew he was trouble when he walked in, (laughs) the Rick Wilson, the co-founder of the Lincoln Project and host of the Enemies List podcast, a lifelong Republican. He was an early critic of President Trump and has turned his expertise in the dark arts into a steady onslaught of online ads highlighting the 45th president's iniquity. Since leaving politics, Rick has published two books, Everything Trump Touches Dies, and the more recent Running Against the Devil. Rick, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Harry. All right. Well, you can't say not a lot going on at the moment. (laughs) Justice came to Donald Trump last week in the form of an $83.3 million verdict in the civil defamation trial, the second defamation trial brought by E. Jean Carroll, who proved in the first that Trump had sexually assaulted her in a department store dressing room and then lied about it repeatedly. So let's start here. How big is the sting for Trump? He initially poo-pooed it at a political rally, you know, portraying himself as Mr. Perfectly Fine, but he didn't keep his composure very long. And uh, Rick, you wrote Donald Trump's going to need to sell some more hats. (laughs) Was this a true hit for Donald Trump? 
Look, uh, what we've seen in the days since that judgment is that there is a number that actually is like a piece of duct tape over Donald Trump's mouth at long last. And $83 million is, as they say, real money. And he has been remarkably hesitant to engage in his normal locker room talk, if you will, about Eugene since that moment. It's true. He runs on in the mouth at everything afterwards, but you know somebody has, or his own pocketbook has gone to his head and said, this you have to stop, and he stopped. And I just want to second what Rick says. You guys would all know better, but it, it feels to me, it's not just the money, although that plus the New York fraud verdict coming got to really, really challenge his liquidity, even by his own terms. Mm-hmm. But just seeing him brought to heel... It felt that, or is this just wishful thinking, that it really had, you know, a man who's gotten away with everything his whole life just didn't get away with this one, and that mattered in political terms. He seems to be, you know, entering his accountability era. Thoughts? I think accountability era, maybe. We'll see. He's certainly in his I have a lot of legal troubles era, and I think his political opponents, I mean, I'm spending a lot of time with Nikki Haley. So he's a, he's Mr. They're putting me in jail for something I didn't do, I know, but still. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, or it's I think I did something bad, but why does it feel so good if you're Donald Trump? <laughs> yeah. It's hard to be casually cool about a ruling for 80 plus million dollars against you, especially when there's questions about how liquid you are especially when we learn from FEC filings and other places that your donors are paying your legal bills. Certainly that's something that Nikki Haley, everything she has attacked him on because he's still in a primary, despite the fact that Republicans want to believe that it's over. And I know technically it is, but it's actually not because Nikki Haley's still in the race. Like everything he does is what opens an attack line for Nikki Haley. When he mixes up her name with Nancy Pelosi's, that allows Nikki Haley to pounce. When he has his donors paying $50 million in legal bills and then is asking for more, that opens up an attack for her there, too. It's not just that he's making it easy for the Biden campaign two, three months from now, whenever the general starts. These court cases are starting to have ramifications now. He can go on the campaign trail. He can try to continue to make them politically beneficial. He's been good at that so far. But again, it's really difficult to keep saying that this is no big deal when the hammer actually starts falling. I think that's exactly right. You know, you have the money and then you have, of course, just the accumulated weight of all this. I mean, we all have to carry around, you know, calculators now. How much <laughs> money are we talking about? You know, 83 million here, you know, 300 million there. After a while, it adds up to real money, right? So it's not just this one case. It is the accumulation. I mean, he's already blown through $50 million of donor money for legal fees, and that's just a down payment. And also then to just the the reputational damage. You know, Donald Trump's fuel has been that he could shoot somebody and nothing will matter. Well, now he's testing the proposition. What if you have a court that finds out that you are not merely a rapist, you are a lying rapist? I mean, that creates some um, downdraft, I would think, um, on most political candidates, puts other Republicans in a very difficult situation. I mean, just watching Tim Scott on Sunday morning trying to finesse this, you know, because frankly, if you're a Republican, how do you explain the fact that you have had a court finding that this man that you are supporting to be president of the United States raped a woman and then proceeded to defame her? Now, again, there's so much going on and he's been so Teflon for so much time. We have to be worried about the wishful thinking. But this is going to be this long slog. And the question is whether the cumulative weight of all of this and the cumulative weight of the cost, but also just of the findings, is going to weigh him down. And I have to say that that we've all been wrong a, a lot about uh, Donald Trump, also right about a lot of things about Donald Trump. But I don't see how any of this helps him with the gender gap, which is going to be playing out uh, very, very shortly. I think that both Allie and Charlie make a really good point. Some of this has been baked in the cake for a long time. Some of it was starting to get ignored a little bit because it, you know, the primary is functionally over, but not really. Nikki's still punching at him and still in the fight. And it would be so rare to see any other candidate be confronted with this kind of set of devastating revelations over and over and over. And to have a candidate like Nikki, who is quite poised and quite steady as a candidate, hitting him over very effectively and still not moving the needle with the base of the party. And I mean that left or right. 
The only thing I would really add on that is it's a delicate dance for Nikki, right? For Nikki. Haley. Sure. Oh, she still needs to be able to to win and do better with Trump voters here in South Carolina than she did in New Hampshire. And it's why it's fascinating to watch her pounce on him for the things she's willing to pounce on. Basically, the unforced errors that he's allowing her on age, mental fitness, now on the donors paying for legal bills. But I think it's also going to be fascinating to watch the echo chamber between the Nikki Haley campaign and the Joe Biden campaign, because when Nikki Haley is criticizing Donald Trump, it allows Biden to say that the call is coming from inside the House. It's what made the (laughs) January 6th committee hearing that much more effective. And now it's what he's going to get to use as this primary drags on. And I think that's why the Trump campaign is more nervous about this is because they know that that's worse for them. It's not just that they're, they're defending against Nikki Haley, it's that Biden can take that, too. Can I make one more point on this? You Please, know, Charlie, uh, go for it. Yeah. obvious that, that Donald Trump thinks that campaigning from the courthouse, the courtroom is an effective political strategy because he can portray him as a victim. So he made the decision to show up at this E. Jean Carroll uh, case. Now, as I think Rick was alluding to this, I think most Americans might not have clued in on this case before then. They, you know, it was part of the blur in the background. What Donald Trump did by showing up is he shown a huge spotlight on this case where he's been found to rape and have defamed a woman. You know, we do this for a living, right? I mean, right. we've known about this case. We've talked about this case. You've had tens of millions of people that tuned in and there's Donald Trump in this courtroom behaving like a buffoon with his buffoonish lawyer. I mean, it looked incompetent. It looked a little bit unhinged. And the charges are much harder to sort of brush off as just politics. So again, hard to know what the incremental effect will be. But I just think it was an interesting judgment call on his part to hang such a spotlight on this particular case. Total decision on his part. And again, this is like the first gambit or close to the first gambit of what he thinks is his 2024 uh, campaign that I'm just going to show up at at all these court cases and I'm going to, you know, rant and rave and people are going to rally around me. Well, it didn't really work out that well for him. It's so true. And I I just want to underscore it's not just the price tag. It's to the extent his mystique or support really turns on A, doing whatever he wants and B, getting away with it. To Mm -hmm. see him not get away with it really pierced that kind of weird 12-year-old fantasy. He behaved like a jackass in court. Lawyers were aghast. You know, it was all bratty litigant Trump's version. And he, he seemed to have like a marvelous time ruining everything. But then we saw a judge control him. You see Trump brought to heel and it feels like, and I, I want to go in on the Charlie view of, man, we've been burned on this before, but it really felt like it began to erode a really important aspect of his popularity. Can I just add something on that, though, too? I think Trump has been really skilled as I've covered him and all of us have. But as I was on the road with him in 2015 and 2016, he almost made every moment of counterpunching or going on offense He would make this point to his crowd almost as if it was like, look what you made me do. And I think the defamation part of the liability case showed that you can't just say things and have no recourse for them, right? You can't just defame someone in in court, out of court, whatever. But I also think that I was watching E. Jean Carroll on MSNBC after the ruling. And I think that when she says that accountability, like you feel something when someone is held accountable, it felt like a very small microcosm years later of a Me Too movement moment, and one that actually had legal teeth behind it. And I think that that's something that the Me Too movement sort of lacked. And to the extent that this moves metrics with voters, we'll see. I do think the only group of voters who would be moved by this are the people who are suburban women who we saw sort of swing to Biden land last cycle. And can he retain them in places like Georgia and in places like Wisconsin and wherever? I think that's a question we'll answer in a year. But like, don't sleep on how accountability especially makes women feel seen and the way that E. Jean Carroll and that ruling will be important in that way. Yeah, let's stick with that for a second, even aside from the politics, it felt perhaps, and I think this is maybe what you're saying, that the case represents a sort of turning point for victims of sexual assault who in the past, especially older victims, have been disbelieved, put through the lingual ringer, you know, used to be, you're on your own, kid. But I wonder if those days are beginning truly to be put behind us. And especially, I have to think, encouraging for older women who've been really harshly treated coming forward in the past. Charlie, what struck me about it 
as a 60-year-old man, I, all I thought was, E. Jean is my mother's age. And to imagine my mother carrying a burden like that for 40 years, and then to have people, not just on the legal side, but the political and the social media side, attacking her in the classic old horrible tropes, nutter a slut, all the things. And even to this moment, if you go on Twitter, you can see some of the most utterly vile, vile shit from these people because it's like, Mr. Trump, we're going to show you how loyal we are by destroying this woman who tried to, who dared to defy you. I got to tell you, we, at the Lincoln Project, we talk to female Republican and ex-Republican voters a lot. They're a core demographic of our Bannon line voter demo. What we're seeing, at least in these early moments of this, is women are, when they become aware of it, they are repulsed. Even women who you would think would be more MAGA-centric demographically, they are sickened by it. I think it's going to have a bigger impact. We've moved past locker room talk. Right. And and the other part of this is, it's not Stormy Daniels. It's not somebody none of these women could possibly really relate to. This is a woman who was a professional. She was a writer. She was, And Stormy was a little bit of a different cultural mismatch with a lot of these suburban voters. Eugene's a different story, and it, it's one that they, a lot of them have experienced in their lives. On Stormy, by the way, it's looking, this is not for this episode, but as if each of the, the trials and the 91 counts are being pushed away, but but one that we're going to be seeing is the Stormy Daniels case brought out of New York. Charlie, I just want to follow up because these things happened in the first trial, the adjudication, although it was then a relatively low price tag. But if, as I recall, what it mainly brought home to you was the kind of indifference to the rules of decency that everyone used to follow, at, that, that Republicans had now come to abandon. So it it sounds like maybe you think this case actually might break through in a way that the previous one did not. Well, uh, first of all, we don't know. I mean, we've we've seen this over and over again, you know, and the and the willingness of Republicans to swallow and to move the window of acceptable behavior, you know, is infinite. We've seen that. Ali's right, though. Um, We're shifting into a general election where it's a different set of voters. But I think we all just need to take a deep breath and realize we're not talking about somebody who's accused of sexual harassment or saying uh, offensive things. We're talking about a man who has been found to have raped a woman, actually committed rape, running for president. Now, this would disqualify, Rick, you correct me on this. This would disqualify anybody running for school board, town council. Anything, anywhere. A state legislature, governor, any job in America. There is no corporate CEO who could survive an allegation like this. There's nobody in the military. There's no coach in professional baseball or football that would be able to survive something like this. And yet Donald Trump is running for president of the United States. And not only did he rape the woman, he then embarked on a campaign to destroy her and to defame her. Mm -hmm. Now, this is part of the challenge because it's what Brian Kloss, you know, calls the banality of crazy or the banality of of evil because we've gotten so numbed by all of the outrages of Donald Trump. Sure. So does this make a difference? Well, I do just wonder, as we get into the campaign and people are focusing on this, people are telling people about it, Donald Trump is calling attention to it. Unless American culture has changed even more dramatically than we think it has, it's going to have some sort of an effect because I still believe in the existence of gravity, but I don't know, perhaps I'm naive. What do you guys think? I don't know. I don't know. I struggle with the idea of political gravity when it applies to Donald Trump. And the only reason that I do is because I am both the person who sits in this car and thinks that it really means something, especially to women and survivors of sexual abuse, to see something in the accountability vein in the Eugene Carroll case. And I'm also the same person who covered Donald Trump in 2016 and saw dozens of credible misconduct allegations against him. And then him on tape basically saying that he did those things by saying, grab them by the, and we all saw that and America effectively shrugged. And I think that both things can be true, but I think it does say a lot about the Republican primary voter that Nikki Haley, who has been strategic in how she's attacked the former president, is saying nothing about the substance of the E. Jean Carroll case. She has said that she believes the jury. 
She has said that she doesn't want to have his legal troubles in this or other cases, but she has not engaged with the substance of the rape allegation and the rape liability. And as the only woman in this race, but now the only challenger to the former president, I think that tells us a lot about where Republican voters are, because again, she's been strategic about this. She knows where she can pull her punches and she knows where she can't. She's still running in a Republican primary. And until Republicans want to hold their own accountable, not just in a courtroom, but in a political sense, this kind of stuff is still not going to matter and, and until the voters make it matter. And, and truthfully, I do think that rape is one of those things that I would love to see matter enough to voters to keep you know, accountability in that way. What a fallen world we live in where we have to hope that rape is an accountability matter. You know? Oh, my God. How far down a lot of his behavior has dragged this country. You know, look, we've all seen this film before and didn't like the ending, but I, I wanted to go to just this point as a sort of closeout. We're always talking about what effect it'll have and we'll see. But Bill Crystal was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he made the point that like, you know, there's no Nuremberg trials here, even if things go well. Trump or Trumpism or something sort of remains on the scene. And, you know, maybe in the context of everything going on, these are like champagne problems. But do you foresee a time in our lifetimes in which Trump and Trumpism have ceased to be a factor on the American landscape altogether? Is there a movement in our future like there was for Joseph McCarthy at long last there have you no decency and it just ended? Or will we be, all right, Dems are still four points up for years to come? There is a machinery around national populism now in the media in the ideological underpinnings of what was the Republican and the conservative movement that views Trump as only a step on the road to the future they want. And so we're going to still be confronted with this and we're going to be confronted with a Trumpist flavor of it for a while now because Trump's going to be around. He's one of those people that can eat five Big Macs a day and he will live to be 107 years old. He will never go away. He will never stop trying to be on the, in the media it's dynastic. The kids will run. I promise you, I, I can smell it in the wind. And the acolytes, the J.D. Vances of the world, Carrie Lake. the Kerry Lakes of the world, right? The, the Marges and the Matt Gates, those acolytes of this, they'll run. So we're not going to get out of this for a very long time. I don't know how bad the political humiliation has to be for the Republicans to break the spell. But considering they've lost almost a thousand seats around the country in legislatures and county offices and statewide offices in Congress, et cetera, since Trump, and they don't seem to really care. There's no political incentive structure right now for them to stop. I don't think there's a getaway car from Trump or Trumpism in the Republican Party right now, in large part because I think we've all had these conversations with electeds on the Republican side where they say one thing publicly and it sounds very different when you go off the record with them in you know, their office or off stage. I used to think that that fear basis for still supporting Trump publicly was solely based in the money and the fundraising. And I think that it still is, but it's less about him and it's more of the brand of politics that he's espoused that they're now finding financial upside in, which is like they know when they send an angry fundraising email or have a viral moment hammering Democrats in a way that is outside the traditional norm, they will make more money, they will get more attention, they will be able to parlay themselves into better Fox News segments. He has created a cycle for people that even if they're not Trump, even if they're not the kids, it's still the same. Like It's a system that now is self-fulfilling within the Republican Party. And I don't think that there's critical mass of everyone wanting to get off because even though it's not working in the electoral sense that Rick points out, it's working in the permission structure and like the small time niche sense. And that's, you know, one way of winning. I can only add something nerdy to this conversation because I think that you are absolutely right. This is going to be with us for a very, very long time. And I agree with everything that, that Rick had to say about there will be a dynastic element to this as, as well. But also the fact is there is an infrastructure. There are the incentive structures. And the fact that this has gone on for so long, I mean, just think about the number of people who have come of age during this last decade, who have entered politics in this last decade, they think of this as normal. This is the way you would rise in politics. They will be around and they will be influential 20, 30, 40 years from now. And to your point, Harry, you mentioned McCarthyism, okay? My home state, Wisconsin, Senator, and how it went away. Not really. See, the thing about it is these things never really go away. So who was Joe McCarthy's? number one evil henchman, 
Roy Cohn, who was part of the red baiting. Where did Roy Cohn go? Roy Cohn morphed into Donald Trump's lawyer, Donald Trump's model for what he wanted in a lawyer. So he wanted an attorney general who was Roy Cohn, and then he became his own Roy Cohn. I think I'm borrowing that from, from Michael Cruz. So you, what you have is you have this line from the worst people in the early 1950s to the moment we are in right now. So I'm sorry that somebody's going to be doing whatever is the virtual reality podcast 70 years from now, and they're going to say, do you know how we got to this moment? It's <laughs> remember what happened back in 2024. So I'm sorry, but I'm going even darker than you guys are, because I think that these things have all just they put in their deep roots. The end game does not sound as good as Taylor makes it sound. <laughs> no, no, it's really true. I mean, they need to do because they remain a minority party. And it's also that strategy and seeming the sole one to cling to power, have a shot, as opposed to like taking a deep breath and just breaking the whole thing to smithereens and starting again and hoping to have a genuine majority. Well, pretty glum. And let me move to my version of this nightmare, which is um, the Supreme Court, where I, oldster that I am, uh, have to be looking at a totally transformed Supreme Court that is going to be around my entire life. But a uh, huge moment for them. This week, they'll hear our argument in case that could, actually, end the Trump nightmare with a stroke, cleaner than the Joe McCarthy era by holding. <laughs> it seems congruent with what we all witnessed, that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and is therefore disqualified from future federal office. Let me start again with you, Charlie. Beginning your podcast, recommended to all, by the way, you said, what will the Supreme Court do? So to amend it slightly... What will the Supreme Court be thinking in approaching the case? What, what are the sort of major concerns on John Roberts' mind, on everybody else's mind? It seems to be a case in which, A, there's not a lot of law out there, and B, there are overweening political concerns that really factor in. Well, I'll take the big picture first, is what they're thinking is, Get us the hell out of here. We don't want to be here. We do not want to do this. Please stop. This is a nightmare. It's not even dressed like a daydream. Maybe it's somebody's daydream. But um, see, I was going to do that there. You need to calm down. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I was on with some legal analyst who was saying that, the, you know, the briefs were so airtight that there was, was no way out that, of course, yeah. the court was going to have. And no, no, no. That, that's not the way the world works. That's old think. <laughs> this court does not want to base its reputation on this case. If they can find any sort of an off-ramp, they will take it. And what does off-ramp mean here, Charlie? I agree, but what do you mean by off-ramp? Finding some way to, to dodge a definitive ruling. First of all, they are not going to throw him off. I don't think they want the headline saying, court finds that Donald Trump is not an insurrectionist. They'll find some niggly way of dodging a, a decision. Maybe they're hoping in their hearts that they can balance it out by saying, no, he's not immune. We're going to reject the absolute immunity thing, while also saying we are not going to drop a nuclear bomb on the American presidential you know, campaign by throwing him off it. There is just no way that this court, and I would go beyond that, there's no court that I can think of, really, that would want to do something like that. Put it this way. I don't think that there are very many Supreme Court watchers or justices that sit around going, you know what one of our great moments was? We wish we could like go back and do Bush v. Gore. Bush v. Gore. <laughs> you know, and this is like Bush v. Gore, like times a thousand. So and people say, well, but what are the originalists going to say? Or what about this? Really, people. They'll also say, get me out of here. Get me the hell out. This is definition dancing with their hands tied. 100%. There's no winning this. I can't imagine that you could be a more miserable person right now than John Roberts. Absolutely. Mm. That is a job that he probably wanted his whole life. And now that he's got it, it turns out that it is a terrible, terrible position because no matter what he does, he will either be seen as a traitor to the country or a traitor to the country by half of America. He's in a very bad spot. Although we all agree, it sounds like he is, and all the possible rationales for doing what Charlie outlines are lousy legally. And the, most recently, the officer argument's been getting a very impressive uh, lambasting in court, new, the brief of the historians. But we're all, we're all of a piece in saying 
they won't be the agent of kicking them off the ballot, nor no will they be in the agent of some kind of patchwork, no in Colorado, yes in Wyoming, kind of. No, 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 no. I think that's right. I think they're going to make a horrible compromise decision that will please no one, and they will not profit from it. All right. So can I ask you a question? Law aside and the court standing aside, what is the best thing for the country to happen here? And, and what's the worst? Wolf attack. <laughs> I was going to say meteor, but... Uh... Just a little vaporization. <laughs> right. Go back to 19. When was he born? Twenty. Okay, no, go ahead. <laughs> wolf attack. <laughs> Death by a thousand cuts? No, wolf attack. Death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> no, look, I, I, there, everyone wants this magical thinking thing to happen to Trump. Yeah. They want him to disappear, go away, fall apart. And believe me, Meteorite, wolf attack, shark, whatever. None of it, none of it's going to happen. Trump has the luck of the devil and he's going to be here. We have to beat him and then we're going to have to beat his movement. And it's just like a, it, it's a tiring process. It's more exhausting than any of us who started out in the never Trump movement ever even anticipated just because so many people are now basically investors in Trump Inc., politically speaking. As they say, we are sinners in the hands of a cruel and angry God. <laughs> and he must be very angry. That was more than five words, but otherwise beautifully eluquent. I'm actually going to go to the argument, which I think might take hours, and see them casting about. As I say, I've thought about it a fair bit. I don't think they've the court ever has had a case that combines such moment, political moment, national moment, with such a total absence of law out there. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar is about security clearances, which are official determinations that allow an individual to access sensitive government information. It's the unauthorized access to national defense material that has given rise to Donald Trump's criminal charges down in Mar-a-Lago. To explain security clearances, we welcome Dulce Sloan. Dulce is a correspondent on Comedy Central's The Daily Show, a position she's held since 2017. And she also co-hosts the popular podcast, Hold Up, with Daily Show writer and fellow comedian Josh Johnson. I give you Dulce Sloan on security clearances. In order to be able to review classified materials, Federal employees must have a security clearance. The clearances, which are preceded by background investigations, are designed to ensure that the employee is reliable, trustworthy, of good conduct and character, and loyal to the United States. The unauthorized disclosure of classified material potentially can pose grave threats to the national security, including the revelation of sources and methods of intelligence. Security clearances are granted at different levels depending on the purpose and privileges accorded and the background checks that employees must undergo to receive a clearance become more stringent as the levels rise. Lower-level clearances include those for non-sensitive positions and public trust positions. These background checks will review the past 10 years of an individual's criminal and credit history. At this level, background checks may be processed by an automated system. Above these are security clearances granted for national security positions. Within this category, Clearances are granted by hierarchical tiers that determine what types of information an individual may access. From least to most restrictive, the tiers are confidential, secret, and top secret. Alongside a top secret clearance, an individual may receive sensitive, compartmented information for intelligence methods or special access programs clearance for sensitive projects. Background checks for these positions are far more thorough and include interviews with neighbors, employers, and friends, among others. They also must be renewed regularly. The clearance system has come into the public eye over the past 15 years following major breaches in sensitive federal intelligence. In 2013, United States Army soldier Chelsea Manning was convicted by court-martial of violating the Espionage Act after disclosing hundreds of thousands of classified or sensitive documents to WikiLeaks. In 2013, Edward Snowden, a subcontractor to the NSA, was found to have leaked thousands of national security agency documents to The Guardian. Finally, 
The Department of Justice has charged former President Trump with 31 counts of unlawful retention of national defense information and related offenses based on his unauthorized retention and transfer of classified documents after the end of his term as president. For Talking Feds, I'm Dulce Sloan. Thank you, Dulce Sloan. Dulce's new memoir, Hello Friends, Stories of Dating, Destiny, and Day Jobs, drops tomorrow, February 6th. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. I'd like to take a few moments to talk both substance and politics of the border. Immigration enforcement policy has been a perennial problem in the country, but it seems to have sharpened of late. First, the numbers. Actually, let's start here. The numbers of people crossing the southern border has hit record highs, including folks from Central and South America, but also China and Bangladesh. Are there new factors driving this rise? And is this the new normal in any sense? A lot of what we're seeing right now is the sense of oppositional defiant disorder as a political party. For years, Republicans have screamed at the top of their lungs, this is the most important issue. Our sovereignty, our national security, it's all at risk unless we act right now. And so the Biden bill or the the Lankford bill that Biden has endorsed, not the Biden bill, let me be more precise, delivers eight-tenths of what Republicans have said they wanted. It delivers more than they had in the last time there was a serious immigration bill in 2014, by an order of magnitude in terms of border security and undoing a lot of the asylum claim system as it exists today. But as they've admitted, they want the political issue. Their party depends on panic. They have to have that sense of urgent terror among 65-year-old non-college white dudes in Missouri watching Fox at night thinking, my God, they're going to bring a taco truck. They're going to take my job and, and marry my wife and kill my dog. It's just a fake panic. People aren't faking their alarm, yes? They've somehow been talked up into this. They've been taught that alarm by a media culture that is particularly understood that for a long time, to follow the old Lee Atwater rule, after a while, you can't say the N-word, so you say school segregation. Well, guess what? Now they say border control, immigration. Now they say those brown people coming over in caravans. It's all code. It's all an underpinning of a racially generated fear that the Republican Party, and when I was a part of it, we profited from it magnificently on the political space. And I'm from Florida, where everybody's a goddamn immigrant. I live in the United States of America where everyone's a goddamn immigrant. Yep. But I also think it's Republicans on the Hill really showing their cards, whether they meant to or not, 
when they say that they're happier to keep this alive as a political issue. I haven't spoken to one person, Republican or Democrat, who has worked in the homeland security space who says that what's happening at the border is no big deal. I've never met that person. Everyone agrees that this is a problem that needs to be solved. As with most things in Washington, no one gets their way of solving a problem exactly how they want to. But this bill, and I know that we are playing this waiting game for the text of this bill like nothing else, but I do think that watching Lankford on the Republican side, Cinema playing the middle game between the parties, and Chris Murphy on the Democratic side trying to wrangle something on this is A, admirable for something that has vexed this town for decades, but especially now is deeply in need of a fix. But then also they show their cards when they say that doing eight out of 10 things that Republicans want, but not getting those two out of 10, that that's not good enough. And I do think that most Americans who hear that would say, well, wouldn't a little bit of a fix be better? It's not like if you get shot in the leg, just because you don't have a full tourniquet and stitches doesn't mean you're not still going to want to stop the bleeding. And so I think <laughs> right. that that's one of the things that people are going to eventually, if this is- You should put that to music. I should be Taylor Swift in my next life. Exactly. Well, no, come <laughs> on. No, but, and Charlie, to put the, a finer point on it, it's not simply what Alex says, every word of which is true, but that the uh, mass of Republicans are doing it at the word of, at the insistence of- a man who's not a elected official at all and wants to be great. It's just somehow, not somehow, the command went up from Donald Trump that it's better politically to have no deal, even though it's, it, they're so close to what they've professed to want for years, than a deal, and everyone falls into line, yes? Yeah, and, and it's the naked cynicism, and it's so, it is so transparent, as Ali says. You know, and I guess I want to concur in part and dissent in part from what Rick said. This is one of those moments where uh, sometimes the worst people in the world acting in bad faith will actually have a point because there is a problem with the border. There are legitimate concerns about the border. You're seeing this from Democratic governors and, and, and mayors around the country. This is a real political problem for the Democrats. Then, of course, now we, we switch to the performative aspect of it. So Republicans know they have uh, Joe Biden on the ropes on this one. They think they have the wind at their back. And so they have been saying this is an existential, imminent threat. Your life, you know, your children's life, they're going to die from fentanyl. All of these things are out there, and they're basically handed on a platter 80% of what they wanted. And it's obvious that it's going to be 80% of what they want. And they decide because Donald Trump says no, that they're not going to do anything about it. So this was an issue that I think this was going to be a massive cudgel. Now it's going to be interesting to see whether it flips, because Joe Biden can go out there during the State of the Union and say, you know, this is a crisis. You've been saying it's a crisis. We all know it's a crisis. Here's the solution. This do-nothing Republican Congress is refusing to do anything about something that by their own definition, they say is a crisis. So the question is, you, you flip it around. Now, again, going back to cynicism, I'd be interested in Rick's take on this. The Republicans are just calculating, yeah, we're going to take some shots from the pundits, but anything bad that happens is going to be blamed on Joe Biden. So yes, we will very transparently continue to foment this crisis, knowing that, yeah, this, the voters are still ultimately going to blame uh, Joe Biden. It's very cynical, but um, as we know, sometimes cynical politics is not necessarily ineffective politics. What do you think? I want Joe Biden to go out and do something that is probably a little anathema to Democrats. I think he should go on stage at the State of the Union and look out into the crowd and say, every one of you, led by Donald Trump, who is blocking this bill, you are standing with the coyotes, with the fentanyl smugglers, with the child smugglers, with the people who are bringing Chinese and Arab illegals over the border. Every single one of you, you're the biggest ally of the cartels. Put the language and the heat back onto the Republicans for a moment because their base cognitively is used to hearing those words only applied to the Democrats. Just like with Ukraine, Biden has the chance to invert the traditional political perspective where, oh, the Democrats are the weak ones on foreign policy, where it's the Republicans who want Vladimir Putin to drive into Kiev. And there's a chance, I think, for Biden to do that on immigration and to try to seize the tough position, to try to seize the strong position on this. It's not easy. A lot of his people will worry that with the traditional sort of democratic overthinking, oh, no, we can't, we can't say anything, but it'll work. And I think, frankly, as Charlie says, Democratic governors are pointing this out. So we're, I think we've got a, a way to do this. Putting my political reporter hat on here, when I first heard 
that McConnell and others were going along with the idea that keeping this alive as a political hot potato was more beneficial. The first thing I thought of was the Senate map and places where Democrats have the chance to play defense. Places like I'm thinking Arizona, Montana, Florida is a place that Republicans are actually going to have to play a bit of defense on this year because Democrats are going to at least try to put money into Florida. I mean, Rick, you and I both know how the Democratic Party there has atrophied. But at the same time, they're going to try to play that game. Like those are states where there's competition on a Senate map. And McConnell knows that winning at the end of the day is the only thing that matters in terms of seats in the Senate. Mm -hmm. So when I heard this, that was the first thing I thought about. It's a Senate play more than it is a Trump play for him anyway. Rick, you're a kinder and gentler person than I am, because I think Biden should go bigger. I think he should say to Congress, you have to decide whether you stand with the American people and with American sovereignty or whether or not you're going to turn this country over to that sick fuck. <laughs> I mean, change it up. When I heard that the president privately <laughs> refers to Donald Trump as a sick fuck, all I could think of was, I have never loved this man more in my life. <laughs> okay, can I just say something? I mean, I Well, you just said something. I'm a little worried about it. <laughs> It's going to be the same phrase over and over again, because, Rick, you do this as well when you're talking to swing voters and everything, uh, swing voters in, in swing states like Wisconsin. And this is what struck me about this story so much, that in my conversations, by the way, if you try to say, you know, Joe Biden is the greatest president ever, you should support all of his policies, they're going to completely shut you down. You know, of there are, Many of them are, are still conservatives who are, you know, kind of wondering, you know, shouldn't I just vote for this guy as the lesser of two evils? But when you go through and then they'll talk about various issues, they'll talk about taxes, they'll talk about gender, they'll talk about a variety of things. But when you get down and you've had your third beer and you say, you know what, you're right about a lot of that. But at bottom, Donald Trump is a sick fuck, isn't he? And everyone will nod. Yes, he is. And that's that's the question is people who think that this is going to be decided on issues or all of those other things. I think ultimately it's going to be decided by those voters who have to decide, do I care enough about these other issues to put that guy back in the White House? So, which goes back to our original thing about the E. Jean Carroll thing. So when I heard that Joe Biden is saying that, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know what? At least Joe Biden, first of all, he gets it. And there's been this weird asymmetry where, you know, there's no shame. He will call everybody names, every insult, every vile slur, every single threat. And yet Democrats are kind of held to, well, no, you must be the protectors of civility. You must play by the Marquis of Queensberry rules. You can't do this. And all the all the pundits will say, Mr. President, be better. Look, Joe Biden calling Donald Trump a sick fuck is not the problem. It is the fact that we have a great moment in presidential hitting the nail on the head there and, you know, calling it out. So, OK, he's not going to do it. I'm not being totally serious here. But I think that what you're seeing is that there's an indication that Joe Biden is prepared to wage a campaign that is not completely asymmetrical. And I've always been worried about that, is that the Democrats come out as the cricket team and then you have, you know, Mad Max and, and Thunderdome, you know, come in and say, no, no, right. this is not a cricket match. This is Mad Max. You know? you know, you have the Democrats come out and they have this elaborate chess thing. And then Donald Trump just stands up and pisses all over the chessboard. You know, I mean, it's just like, guys, you need to play the same game. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and this is, I think, the basic political point of trying to make this campaign, which we hear the White House is going to do about Trump. Back to immigration, there's just the fact of not doing anything in this perennial problem. You know, they don't have to give each other friendship bracelets. They can just, but they, there's an obvious solution here that they're within an inch of. Other thoughts on immigration? I have just one tiny punctuating thought based on something Charlie said, which is that I do think voters are voting based on the person and what they think of Trump versus Biden. But I do think that there are two issues that could be particularly impactful the first is I do think immigration and the second is abortion or if you want to call it reproductive rights. But I actually am someone who having covered reproductive action for a long time, like we cannot underestimate what women's rage can spur in terms of action. And the thing I keep coming back to, and I know we only have six or seven plot points on this, but every single electoral plot point that we have had, especially in red states like Kentucky and Mississippi and Ohio, like we have seen Repro be the winner on the ballot. And I will not get over the fact that I spent time in Ohio on a random Tuesday in the hot days of August 
for a ballot measure that didn't even have the word abortion in it, and three million people turned out to vote. I mean, that's not something you can ignore, and I think it's really important we keep that in mind. A hundred percent. So right. So right. Yeah, and by the way, combining with this very interesting apparent finding of late that younger women have become distinctly more progressive than younger men on a gamut of issues, driven, people posit, by abortion, but going through the, you know, the whole gamut. All right. Immigration does feel like the ultimate issue where we get older, but never wiser, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen this time. We just got a minute left for our final feature of Talking Five. Maybe, I don't know, I've got Taylor Swift in mind somehow. Um, She writes a lot, as her fans know about her life experiences. So the Talking Five question is... If Taylor Swift were to write a song about her experience being turned into a right-wing conspiracy theory, what would it be titled? Five words or fewer, panel, please. Look what Klaus Schwab made me do. (laughs) Okay. It'll leave you breathless or with a nasty scar. (laughs) Nice. I would go... Deep state of grace. Oh, oh nice one. Well oh, done. Very good. Well done. And when I tell well you my done. Taylor Swift group chat has a lot of thoughts on this, oh boy. <laughs> oh, I bet it does. All right, here, I'm saying it right now. If whoever um, gets a better uh, answer than all of us gets a free Talking Feds mug. All right, I was tempted with, now we got bad blood, but I'm going with, I'm in my PSYOP era. Ooh. Nice. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Allie, Charlie, and Rick. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Oh, and some exciting news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests. Whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, all you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message. That's 727-279-5339. You can also email us your questions at questions at talkingfeds.com. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers... The Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine. Associate producer, Meredith McCabe. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers and production assistants by Akshaj Turbailu. Thanks very much to Dulce Sloan for explaining security clearances. A special shout out for this episode to Lila Aaron. Our gratitude, as always, and a very special happy 87th birthday to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Lintman. Talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs>